um, from Greek writings in 200 BC. A Greek physician is writing a recipe uh, for pickles and he uses two similar words, baptizo, which is to baptise, and the root word bapto, which more simply means to dip, like with your fingertips. And in the recipe, he says to bapto, that is to dip the cucumbers in boiling water, but to baptizo them in vinegar. So I think you can see the difference. If you get it the wrong way around, you're not going to end up with nice pickles. Um, You don't need to put the cucumber in boiling water for very long, too long, and they'll turn to mush, just a dip. But unless you really immerse the cucumber in vinegar, unless you really let it sit and marinate for a while, you don't really have a pickle either. You just have a wet cucumber. I saw a show on TV recently where a character was baptised and when they went down in the water, they didn't just bob straight back up, they really lingered down there for several seconds. Now, they probably just did it in the show for dramatic effect. It might have been slow motion, but they weren't moving much, so it looked the same either way. But I kind of liked that image and it really illustrated this idea of baptism, of immersion, where you're really deep in the water and stay there. And you can really get that sense that something is really happening, something is changing, and it's not something that can be just brushed off in the briefest of moments. Anyway, so with this understanding of baptism as immersion, we see there are several different types of baptism, literally that word, that is referring to different functions and purposes. So what are they? Firstly, there's that simple act of washing, like with water. We saw that in the example of pickles, where it's literally used to describe these everyday occurrences of immersing things in water or pickles or vinegar, as it might be, for pickles. Um, But that use isn't really very pertinent to our, our time this morning. Secondly, there's this idea of ceremonial washing. Such washings are found throughout religions of different kinds that we can see. Um, We see them in different forms in the law of Moses, for example. For example, the priests are called to perform different kinds of washings for different purposes. Some are one-off events. For example, uh, the sons of Aaron are called to to wash in this way uh, when the uh, tabernacle is inaugurated in Exodus chapter 40, these washings. Others of these washings are ongoing uh, where they do it time after time, where, uh, for example, the priests are called to wash every time before they offer sacrifices or before they approach the altar. And there's all sorts of other different washings or you might say baptisms that are prescribed for different things like following an infection, um, after touching a dead animal, um, all these other sorts of things that would make you ceremonially unclean in some fashion. There were these washings that were called for uh, in response to those to restore cleanliness. And by Jesus' day, these washings had developed into a very rigid habit by the Pharisees, where they would they would wash in such a way before every meal um, that had obviously had a deeper significance than literally washing dust off their hands. And Jesus describes these in Mark chapter seven 
as baptisms. He uses that word uh, that they baptise after uh, coming home every day from the market. The Essenes, which were a sect, a uh, Jewish sect uh, in Jesus' day, um, they're the people from whom we have the Dead Sea Scrolls. They also had a practice of rit- these ritual washings or baptisms that they would do every day to maintain this idea of purity. Um, they would baptise themselves, immersing and washing every day. Um, there's also the idea of John's baptism. Um, John, who was, of course we know as John the Baptist or John the Baptizer, was obviously famous for his baptism in the waters of the Jordan River. But why did John baptise? Why this thing? Why did he do it? Um, many have connected John's baptism with a Jewish practice of baptism for proselytes or non-Jews. But this practice didn't really uh, take off uh, for the Jews until after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. So many have actually connected John and his baptism uh, with this group, the Essenes, who we just mentioned. Both were from the desert, both practised some form of baptism that had this idea of of purity and cleansing. Um, But while the Essenes did this every day, John's baptism doesn't seem to have been this kind of thing. Um, It was something done by John, to, to his, his followers rather than something one did for oneself for the Essenes. But he also ex- introduces this explicit notion of repentance and forgiveness of sins. As we see in Mark chapter 1, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But his focus, of course, wasn't just on this idea of the act of baptism in itself. It was supposed to mean something. It was supposed to create a change in people's lives, a repentance not just of the mind, but in practice and in action. I suppose we often give only little thought to what John taught. We think of him as a baptizer, but he also taught uh, related to this. And so just let's see what he said about um, the fruit of baptism, you might call it, according to him in Luke chapter 3. We read, John said to the crowds coming out to be baptised by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. What should we do then, the crowd asked. John answered, Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptised. Teach, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptise you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear up the threshing floor and to gather gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. 
And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. So what what do we learn from this? Firstly, notice his emphasis on repentance, but not just a nominal repentance, not just something you say and do on that day, but it was a practical repentance. And it depended on who you were. It depended on your sins. Um, The repentance would look differently, obviously. Um, But the idea was that this baptism, the repentance that led to this baptism, began a new way of life. It was supposed to yield fruit, fruits of repentance, as he put it. But also, secondly, his baptism, his ministry, looked forward to another man, another prophet, another baptism. In, in John and his ministry, the kingdom wasn't here yet, but it was at hand, it was still to come. There was a greater prophet and a greater baptism. John and his teaching and his baptism weren't ultimate or final. And so that brings us to what I'll call Christian baptism, because clearly John makes this distinction here. He baptised with water, but the one to come, Jesus, would baptise with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, while on the face of it, it looks like John is suggesting that we can be baptised either with water, like he did, or the Holy Spirit, as Jesus would. It's worth pointing out that although it isn't explicitly mentioned in practice, um, the apostles still did baptise with water. For example, in a famous example of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, he asks, look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptised? So the practice of baptising, of immersing with water, continued uh, for the church. But what would change what would change would be the work and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> now we'll talk about more this more in a moment, but I want to take a step back and reflect upon the water. Because although John points out that the standout distinction between his baptism and the baptism to come, Christian baptism, wouldn't shed that water aspect. But why? Why water? What does it mean? What does it represent? The water is obviously connected to the name of baptism and immersion. Um, That's the one thing in common between all these forms of baptism. But why? What does it teach us about our own baptism? I want to suggest that this water represents or symbolises five different things that we'll work through. Firstly, and perhaps most obviously, there's the idea of washing, of cleaning, like we just sang about. Are you washed? Um, And there's this sense of renewal that comes from that washing. Through water, something that's dirty becomes clean. If you think about the story of Naaman in 2 Kings, he's instructed to wash, to baptise in the Jordan River to cure his leprosy. Obviously, in that story, there's more at work than just the muddy waters of the river working to cleanse him. It was a work of God. But it was this washing, this idea of washing in the river that would cleanse him of his disease. He was unclean in his leprosy, but he would emerge from the river clean. 
Secondly, water represents nothingness, emptiness and death. Consider what we read in the very beginning of creation in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2. Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now I don't know if what's being described here are literal waters and oceans yet. This is the first day of creation. But it also describes the world as formless and empty before the creation of any life. And the word used to capture this image is water and the deep, like an ocean. Maybe not a literal ocean yet, but that's the imagery, that's the word the writer finds to describe it. This empty, unknown, unexplored place that we dare not go. The deep. John picks up on this image at the end of the Bible in Revelation 21, where he's describing the new heavens and the new earth. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Why mention the sea? Why would there be no sea in heaven? Avid sailors might be a bit disappointed to find that to be literally true, but I don't think John is really talking about the literal sea here. He's talking about what it represents, about the idea of death and emptiness. The sea is that same empty, unknowable thing, unknowable place as death. If you fall out of the boat, you're overwhelmed, lost, never to return. It's a void, a nothingness. You might even say it's an uncreation. And so the good news is in heaven, this is done away with. Death, uncreation is done away with. So that that, that image of water and death. But water also symbolises life and creation. And water, especially fresh water of rivers, is often used in this imagery of life and abundance of this new creation. Consider Ezekiel's description of the work of God as symbolised by a river flowing out of his temple. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. He said to me, This water flows towards the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah where it enters the Dead Sea. When it empties into the sea, the salty water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. All this abundant life in a what was previously an arid and desolate land, the Dead Sea, Um, all of this life is the result of this life-giving water. Without this fresh water, there is no life. So water symbolises life as well. Jesus uses this imagery as well when he speaks of himself as living water through which we might never need to be thirsty again. It's also the same image in Revelation 22 describing this river of life flowing from the throne of God and sustaining the tree of life. Water is this deep image of life 
and, 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 and creation. But of course, water also symbolises salvation. In fact, Peter explicitly connects the image of water and baptism and salvation when he refers to the story of Noah and the flood in 1 Peter chapter 3, where he says, God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolises baptism that now saves you also. So we've already connected water with death and uncreation. And we see that in the story of the flood, don't we? Where God destroyed this wicked humanity through the flood waters. But that same water also saved Noah. But it's also, it's interesting how Peter puts it here. You might say it was the ark that saved Noah. The ark is what kept him uh, out of the deadly flood waters. But Peter said it was the water that saved him. How, how did the water save Noah, not the ark? Um, it was the ark that saved Noah from the water, true, but in a sense also the water saved him from the evil of mankind. It was the water that made the change between the world of evil before the flood and the world of new hope and new creation in the world after the flood. So that, that sense of through the water we have salvation. We're saved from evil uh, into new hope. Paul makes a similar connection to Moses and the Israelites through the Red Sea when he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, our ancestors were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptised into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So just as Noah was saved to this new world through the waters of the flood, Moses and the Israelites were also saved into a new world, from slavery into freedom, and ultimately the promised land through the waters of the Red Sea. And just like the flood, the same waters, the same sea meant death to the unrighteous Egyptians, while it meant life uh, to God's people who were saved. Paul's imagery here extends to the time not just in the sea, the, the moving through the Red Sea, through the parted waters, but also their time wandering in the desert when it talks about the cloud that guided them through that time, that 40 years in the desert. If You might, you might say that the, the desert is a sea on land with the same metaphorical understanding as a sea of water. And, that, and that, so there's that idea of the Israelites going through that uh, sea of water, sea of sand, saving them from the Egyptians. <clears throat> but also we see here how water symbolises trial and suffering. Because although Noah and his family and Moses and the Israelites were saved through the water, it didn't come without cost to themselves. For Noah, the flood itself lasted for over a year, if you add up all the time, not just of the rain itself, but until he was able to come out of that ark. Over a year before he emerged. 
Um, and that's not even thinking about the time, all the time leading up of him constructing the ark and all the, 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 the derision that he got um, from the population that he was trying to convert in that time. It was what an ordeal. He was safe in the ark, but it wasn't an easy or, un, or pleasant experience. He had to trust God that he would be saved through this, this trial. And it was the same for Moses and the Israelites. The working of their salvation from the Egyptians to the promised land was fraught and repeatedly called for faith and trust that God would ultimately provide and deliver for them. Forty years wandering in the wilderness uh, to, to finally reach that salvation, a time of trial and suffering. So that's a quite, quite a list of rich imagery um, to bring to our, our understanding of water as it relates to our baptism. Washing, death and life, salvation and suffering. And with that in our minds, it brings us to consider more deeply Christian baptism. And what was it that John said separated his baptism of water and repentance with Christian baptism? He says, the Holy Spirit and fire. And I think here we get even more imagery that we can draw upon, as I think it's clear that the fire he's referring to here is the Holy Spirit. We know that the Spirit descended on the disciples on the day of Pentecost as literal tongues of fire. So that's a clear connection between the Spirit and fire. But the idea of fire gives us more symbolism that we consider about what's going on here. So firstly, I think about the trial of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego when they're thrown into the furnace in Daniel chapter 3. And we can connect that with the idea of baptism that we've been talking about. It extends this idea of water that purifies. Fire also purifies. Fire kills, yes, but fire also gives new life. Fire saves and tests. It does all these things like water, but only more so. It's like a more intense sense of clean of cleaning, of testing and trial. So in being baptised with the Holy Spirit and fire, we have all these same ideas of baptism by water, but stronger and more acute, more profound, more permanent. But obviously we can't baptise ourselves or immerse ourselves with literal fire, which is why I presume we still use water. But it is important for us to keep this distinction in our mind because the fire isn't just an, in, an additional symbol. It, it is the literal spirit of God that we receive when we're baptised with the Holy Spirit. It was an important enough distinction to make the likes of Priscilla and Aquila and Paul um, when they encountered Apollos and some of his disciples. If you'll recall the story in Acts chapter 18 and 19. Apollos was a bold preacher, yet he apparently only knew this baptism of John. So Priscilla and Aquila take the time to explain to to, to Apollos, as they put it, the way of God more adequately. 
And similarly in the next chapter, Paul arrives in Ephesus and finds some of the disciples um, who had apparently been students of Apollos. And they had also only received what they call John's baptism. They hadn't even heard of the Holy Spirit. Paul explains this distinction in, in verse 4. He says, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. And these disciples were subsequently baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus, as it puts it, and they received the Holy Spirit. So this might seem like a splitting of hairs, but this is a distinction that obviously mattered to Paul, to Priscilla and Aquila, and it should matter to us. This connection of our baptism and the Holy Spirit is inseparable. It isn't just a ritual of repentance or a gesture or a sign like it might have been for the Essenes or even for John's disciples. There's something real, something powerful, something effective and effectual in the act of baptism in the name of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. John's baptism wasn't enough because all it did was point forward to the one coming after him. That is Jesus and baptism in Jesus' name. Which brings us to observe a few more characteristics to note about Christian baptism. Firstly, we baptise into the name of the Father, of the Son and the Holy Spirit, as Jesus puts it in the Great Commission. This again is a significant image for us to consider. That phrase, in, into the name of, was a commercial term uh, of, of the day that signified a transfer of ownership from one to another, in, from one into the name of another. So we have this idea of the change in ownership, change in ownership from ourselves to the ownership of God the Father, Son and Spirit. We're also baptised into one body through that one spirit, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. That's to say the body of Christ. We're baptised into his body, the church, the family of God. We're also born again of water and the spirit. So he puts those two together. They're not separate. Um, But we're born again, as Jesus puts it to Nicodemus. Again, that image of new life, new creation. But before we have that new life, we die with Christ and then we're buried with Christ in our baptism and then we're also raised with Christ in this new birth, this new life. So there's that sense that we die, we're buried and we rise with Christ through our baptism. But also in our baptism we put on Christ or clothe ourselves with Christ depending on the translation. This putting off corresponds with our putting off of our old self, that death, um, and then a subsequent putting on a new self in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And this is obviously connected with that idea of repentance that was important for John, but it's just as important for Jesus, 
turning away from our old self, from our old ways and turning towards the new. So that's a lot of images to have in our mind when we think about the act of baptism. We see a washing, a cleaning as with water or even a refinement as with fire like precious metals. There's a death when we go down into the water. There's a burial as we're immersed and overwhelmed by the water. Sit there for a while. Then there's new life, a new birth, a resurrection as we rise out of the watery grave and breathe again. There's a transaction, a purchase as we're bought and transferred into the name of the one who purchased us. This new life doesn't belong to us, it's Christ in us. We wear new garments, new clothes, a new identity, a new body, a new family to be a part of. It's an act of salvation as we die to a life of sin and alienation from God to rise to a new life of righteousness and kingship with Christ in this family. But it's also an act of trial and suffering. The suffering obviously endemic in the idea of the death and the burial. Um, But also, not just in the moment of our baptism either, but in the daily work, the daily sacrifice, the daily struggle of dying to ourselves and living our new lives in service of our Lord through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I've been talking a lot this morning about baptism and sim- about the symbolism of baptism, imagery and metaphors, water, fire, washing, um, all these types of things. But I don't want to give the impression that baptism itself is merely a symbol that's nice and all, but it can be simply discarded if it's inconvenient or perhaps if, if we've just lost the potency of these images in our modern minds. What is a symbol? In the original understanding of the word symbol, the idea is to bring things together alongside one another and compare. So similar words to symbiosis, the idea is symbol, bringing two things together. So if you think about the symbol of a stop sign, It brings together and associates the literal shape of a red hexagon with the idea and the action of stopping. It unites these two things together in a meaningful way. So we see the octagon and we stop. In the same way, if baptism is a symbol, it's the bringing together of two things. There's the literal act of our being buried in the water, with the spiritual act of death, burial, resurrection and new life. All these things that we've been talking about. But they go together. Why? Because baptism is a work, is both a work of the body and a work of the spirit, the Holy Spirit. Baptism is done with our physical bodies because Jesus lived, died and rose in his physical body. 
a real body, a real death, and a real resurrection calls for a real baptism. But there was more at work in Jesus' death and his resurrection than just his body. God was at work, taking our sins upon himself and ultimately rising again through the power of the Spirit. As Peter puts it in 1 Peter chapter 3, he, Jesus, was put to death in the body but made alive in the Spirit. Jesus died in his body, so we are baptised in our bodies. Just as he was made alive in the Spirit, we rise through the Spirit to a new life. Peter goes on to say, speaking of the floodwaters of Noah, once again, he says, this water symbolises baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand. The waters of the flood are a symbol, but the waters of baptism are the real thing. Not because they wash dirt away from our bodies, but because they unite us with Christ, with his life, his death, his resurrection and his future in heaven. Dismissing baptism as merely a symbol implicates all of those things as mere symbols or metaphors as well. We can learn a lot about what baptism means by considering its symbolism, but ultimately we're literally baptised by water and the Spirit because Jesus literally died, was literally buried and literally rose from the dead. If that's not true, we are to be most pitied, as Paul said. But we trust in our baptism because the one who works and the one who rose are true and they are faithful. So thanks be to God for this indescribable gift.